week 13, warring and obedience. Now, before I get into this, I think it's appropriate that I start out with something we heard uh, from last night's Kingdom U with Apostle Jackie Tyre. And I'm going to start out by giving you this little nugget. Not all battles are for you to fight. Just because you see it, don't mean you're called to engage in it. And that's very important because tonight we're going to be talking about addressing principalities and authorities in the earth. And you need to understand that just because you're aware of it don't mean it's your battle. And the biggest mistake you can do is try to war with something that you're not equipped to war with. And next thing you know it, you're overcome and you're worse off than you started. So make sure you look through that lens of everything tonight because I don't want you walking away here thinking you've got an assignment that really wasn't for you. I want you to be picking up on the assignments that are for, your, for you. Amen? So we're in this, this series with the days of Elisha. And just to give you a little bit of a summary of where we're at, uh, two kings have been killed by Jehu, Ahaziah and Jehoram. Not just two kings, but a pretty nasty lady by the name of, say it out loud, Jezebel. Well, Jehu basically is walking out this prophecy that was spoken by Elijah and then confirmed years later by Elisha that Jezebel would go down and that Ahaziah's people would go down. Jehu is being very obedient to walking this thing out. Jezebel has been killed, but there's still some people to take care of in King Ahab's family, okay? So Jehu is walking out the prophecy that he's heard once by Elijah and then confirmed by Elisha, but there's still more. So let's start out in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Ahab had 70 sons living in the city of Samaria. Some of you are like, dang, 70. All right, Ahab, play it. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the elders and the officials of the city and to the guardians of King Ahab's sons. He said, the king's sons are with you, and you have at your disposal chariots, horses, a fortified city, and weapons. As soon as you receive this letter, select the best, someone say the best, Select the best qualified of your master's son to be your king and prepare to fight for Ahab's dynasty. So let me just explain that in terms that everyone understands. Ahab's got 70 sons, and all of them, so some, of you, some of you moms just went, it ain't all by the same lady, chill out. Ahab, you know, he had his issues. 70 sons in the capital of Israel. They were in the capital. Jehu wasn't there. So with Jehu not being there, these sons could have tried to take the throne because technically they were allowed to. They were next in line. So Jehu challenges the house of Omri, okay? And basically Jehu's like, hey, get the 70 boys together when they're men. 70 sons together, and you pick who's going to be the next king, and then prepare, because I'm coming for you. He's saying, suit up. You got your chariots, you got your horses, you got your weapons. Get all of the guys together, all of the descendants. 
pick one to represent you and get ready because we go into war. And I want to start off this whole message by pointing out this. Sometimes you start a battle by addressing the authorities you're going to battle with, not the thing you're going to battle with. Let me say that again. Sometimes when you start to engage in a battle, don't just address the thing, address the authorities that are aiding in why the thing has happened. Notice Jehu did not write a letter to the sons. He wrote a letter to the authorities of the capital of Israel, saying, rulers, get ready, because I'm coming. I want to read a passage from Ephesians 16 through 13. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against, and stay right here, all the strategies of the devil. If you're losing battles, you're lacking armor. Okay? Look at the next verse, 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in this time of evil. Then, after the battle, you'll be standing firm. We have got to stop trying to just fight the fruit of rulers in the unseen world and start addressing the rulers. We love to address the fruit. People depressed. We like to address the fruit of all of these men and women not knowing how to identify their gender or homosexuality coming or running rampant. All these things. We want to address the fruit, but no one's addressing the rulers. Isn't it funny to you that throughout time, there were certain areas of the world that were basically defined by a certain type of sin? Years ago, when you thought of, and I'm not picking on the gay population, I'm talking about the ruler. But let's talk about it for a minute. Years ago, if you talked about a homosexual area, most people looked at California. You didn't think that Savannah, Georgia, would be full of this, right? There's Las Vegas, what do you think of? The love of money. Prostitute, dang, all right. <laughs> all kind, you've got different things labeled by different stuff, right? Because there are unseen rulers and principalities, and all they're doing is trying to find someone to agree with them. Whispering things, whispering thoughts. And the problem is that the church is not doing a good job teaching people how to war with the rulers. We just love to judge the fruit. You want to know how not to be offended in this world? Realize that whoever is offending you came into agreement with the ruler that they've been battling in their mind. 
And if we are to stand together in Christ, we need to be warring with the ruler and not warring with the person. The reason we do things is because we came in agreement with one of two things. God or the enemy. And one thing that I'm learning very slowly but surely is not to get so mad at someone when they do something against me because I'm understanding they're coming into an agreement with authorities that have had their ear. I want to lead the kind of church that understands how to address these rulers and principalities. I don't want to lead the kind of church that doesn't know how to go to war and how to fight. When you leave this house, I want you to understand how to address what's going on in your household. Those of you that have kids growing up and you start to hear them say stuff and you have no idea where it came from. You ever hear parents say that? So-and-so said this. I have no idea where they got that. Let me tell you. There are unseen rulers and kids are so innocent that sometimes they don't know what they're listening to and because you haven't been taught in the church you look at, at it as cute instead of addressing it is this how do i address it i as the father or mother of my house am standing ground and taking authority over my home you don't need to call me to come bless your home I'm not the authority over your house. You know who the authority is over your house? You. So if you're, if you're finding out that your kids are whispering stuff, you can check YouTube and you can check apps all day, but after you've checked it all, you need to have a conversation with some unseen things. A lot of us know about the Daniel Fast. But what happened in the Daniel fast? Let me read Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 19. Just then a hand touched me, this is Daniel speaking, and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you're very precious to God, so listen carefully what I've got to say to you. You know, you know you're going to listen when an angel starts off like that. Stand up, I've been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling. And then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. Now, how many days was the Daniel fast? 21. Let me just pause right here. God didn't tell Daniel to fast for 21 days. God told Daniel to fast, and this happened on day 21. You fast until, because it's a form of warfare. Daniel's fasting, and look at this. But for 21 days, since the first day you prayed, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. So the angel just said, I heard your prayers on day one and God sent me to you, but I have not been able to come for 21 days because I've been engaging in a battle. Okay? Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me and I left him there. <laughs> Thanks, angel. 
with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So the ruler and authority over Persia was so great that one angel couldn't take it out. Michael had to come and say, let me go to war. You go to Daniel. Does that make sense? Then Now I am here to explain, verse 14, what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns of time yet to come. While he was speaking to me, I looked down at the ground unable to say a word. You ever been there where you know God wants to speak to you, but you can't even look up because you just feel so bad? You're scared, you're trembling, you're at that place in life where you just don't know what to do. This is where Daniel's at. He can't even look up. Then the one who looked like a man, verse 16, touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing in front of me, I am filled with anguish because of the vision I've seen, my Lord. My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. You ever been there? Where you like, you, you can kind of see where life's going and you're just like, I don't want to deal with this. Well, then the one who looked like a man touched me again and I felt my strength returning. Don't be afraid, he said. You're very precious to God. Peace, be encouraged, be strong. As he spoke these words to me, I suddenly felt stronger and said to him, please speak to me, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. Daniel was praying for understanding and enabled a battle with angel against the authority over Persia. So strong that Michael came to engage the angel just to get to Daniel. Why did Daniel need the angel? He was weak and he needed a word that would strengthen him. <clears throat> Encouragement cannot fight things off alone. People who deal with depression, I don't know, this is on my mind tonight, depression. People who deal with depression, you can say encouraging words to them all day long, and a lot of times they still deal with depression. You can't deal with just the fruit of what's going on in the unseen. What's the fruit going on in the unseen? Depression. You've got to engage in a battle with an unseen ruler because the moment you engage, an angel is waiting on your word to begin a fight. You want to talk about the purpose of angels? We are to command them to go to war on our behalf. It's not just, oh, I see a beautiful thing in the cloud to give me peace. No, when, when you've you got to understand, if your friend is depressed, encourage them and... Lord, right now, I deal with whatever is speaking to my friend. And I bind it in the name of Jesus, and I break chains off of my friend. And what's going on is, as you are starting to address the unseen ruler or authority that's been whispering thoughts that your friend has come into agreement with, an angel starts fighting the authority on your behalf. Is this Okay. We can, no, we can no longer just deal with the fruit of the issue. We've got to address the ruler. We've got to address the unseen. And if we don't start addressing it, the ruler sees no threat and will keep talking. You want to know the real reason why things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse? Because darkness is not scared of the church anymore. 
Because the church doesn't know what to war with or even how to war. I wrote this down. Our idea of war looks like convincing without addressing. We try to convince the depressed they're strong without addressing the ruler that is winning the battle in their mind. So what we do is we create church services that feel good. And we want people to leave encouraged. And we want people to know that Jesus saved them. But where the church has missed it is that we stop at salvation and say, hey, become a disciple of Christ, and we teach them how to walk. But no one teaches people how to war. No one teaches people that, hey, you've got to address some unseen things. You can't just say, Jesus is going to do it all. Let me correct that. Jesus has done it all. It is finished. So what's the part now? We have got to stand in Jesus' name with the authority that he cleansed us and bought us with and say, I represent Jesus. Therefore, spirit of depression, you are to fear and tremble at my word. Because what they hear is not you. It's what you represent. They don't fear you. They fear him. So it's not just let me clean up my act because you're covered in the blood. It's let me understand who I am so that I understand I don't have to fear what I'm addressing. Because what I'm addressing is not going to hear me, it's going to hear who I represent. I heard this for years and years from preachers. It's hard to deal with Savannah because there's a dark cloud over the city. You know what I realize now? They don't know how to war. Because personally, I ain't scared of no dark cloud. Because the light in me disperses all darkness. So why should I be scared or trembling of darkness? Because when I walk into the room, if I'm truly possessing the light of God, all darkness has to flee. And if darkness is not fleeing, you need to take a personal inventory of how much light's actually exuding from you. And that's not up to God, that's up to you. Is this okay? Jehu addresses the authorities of Samaria and says, suit up, we go into war. And look what happens in verse 4. But they were paralyzed with what? Fear. And they said, well, we've seen that two kings couldn't stand against this man. What can we do? That's the kind of authority and reputation that the ecclesia of God needs back. That when we address the authorities, they don't push back. They say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. But right now, that's not the kind of authority that the church has. And notice that I said ecclesia. What is the definition of, what is the definition of ecclesia? It's simply, the, it's simply this. An ecclesia was a political assembly conducting business on behalf of something. It was a political assembly conducting business on behalf of the people. So you ever, if you ever hear someone say, church shouldn't be involved in politics, we are the politics. Okay? It's a political assembly gathering, gathering together to address something. What does that mean? 
Jesus calls his church in this way. The unseen realm should be scared to deal with the ones with authority to conduct business on behalf of the Father. Made possible by Jesus and backed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do I need to say that again? The unseen realm should be scared to deal with the ones that have the authority to conduct business on behalf of the Father. Made possible by Jesus, backed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 10, 16 through 20. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware. You will be handed over to the courts and you will be flogged with whips and synagogues. You will stand trial before what? Governors and kings. Because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. It is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. What did this passage just say? You will be handed over and you will be engaging rulers. But see, we don't want to pay the price it takes to get before the rulers. What's the price? Well, everyone disagrees with you and calls you stupid and calls you crazy. We don't like that price. So we become culturally relevant. <laughs> we don't want to pay the price of being handed over to anything. But the fact of the matter is the Father needs your vessel so that they can hear your voice. Because it's not your voice they're hearing. It's his. We need to stop using the excuse of Jesus is returning to validate your lack of being bold. Because what we do is we say Jesus is coming back, so we feel like, what's the point? No, that's not, that's not the point of Jesus coming back. It's a promise so that you don't have to dwell on the promise. Okay. It's a promise. Why did he promise that? You have nothing left to question. You don't have to think about it. He's coming back. Done. Jesus told the disciples that. He left. Angel came down. What you guys still doing looking up? He already told you he's coming back and now you got stuff to do. Amen. Why are you looking up at the clouds? Focus on the task at hand. Disciples. Amen. But what we do is we say, oh, I know it's getting so hard. I'm just glad Jesus is returning. No, you are to address the rulers and it's going to cost something to start addressing it. We're an apostolic house. What that means in a nutshell is we're not here to be relevant to the culture. We're here to change it. And, yep. And specifically for me, part of the culture that I'm sent here to change is the religious church culture. So naturally, at first, I shouldn't be surprised that they ain't going to like me. Because I'm not here for agreement, I'm here for change. 
Because if the church was great, then Savannah would not have been given over to a dark freaking cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Addressing rulers. You see, we got to understand it's not the churches we're fighting with either. It's an unseen principality of religion in the churches. And sometimes the religious people think they're the most free. And therefore, they feel like they have nothing to change. I hope this is... Okay. Look at verses 5 through 7 of 2 Kings chapter 10. So the palace and city administrators together... Oh, it's 740. We're going to be here a while. Is that okay? Okay. If you want to walk out, you'll drop down dead like Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Verse 5. <laughs> so, so the palace and city administrators, together with the elders and the guardians of the king's son, sent this message to Jehu. We're your servants. We'll do anything you tell us. We won't make anyone king. Do whatever, we'll do whatever you think is best. Jehu responded with a second letter. Well, if you're on my side... And you're going to obey me? Bring the heads of your master's son to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now, the 70 sons of the king were being cared for by the leaders of Samaria. Isn't this funny? He's addressing the leaders who are caring for the sons, and now he says, kill the kids. They're, they're adults. Where they had been raised since childhood, verse 7. When the letter arrived, the leaders killed all 70 of the king's sons. They placed their heads in baskets and presented them to Jehu at Jezreel. Isn't that crazy? Jehu spoke on behalf of God and never had to lift a finger to get 70 of them done. And I think we forget that sometimes that oh, there's a lot of work to do, but what if, if we started going to war with the appropriate things, maybe they would actually run from our light instead of us having to lift a finger. Because we're changing by who we are by our love, by speaking truth and not just dealing with their fruit. You know where the work is? Dealing with the fruit. When the fight's with the ruler. In a moment, the enemy submitted to a word from Jehu. The rulers were afraid of the one who represented the true God. What made him true to these rulers to where they listened to him like that? They saw what God did through him. Remember verse 4? It said, we've already seen you take out two kings. Who can stand against you? The enemy saw power put to work and didn't want to engage in it. When we, the church, begin to be obedient to all that God wants, the church will regain its authority and the enemy will be scared of the church so that they will see such power working in us. And when I say they, I'm talking about rulers and authorities of the unseen realm. They will not want to engage when we walk into the place. This is not a pipe dream to me. Can you imagine a day where the church goes into city market and there's so much light that goes through the city that everyone leaves the bars and comes to the center of the city for revival? But that doesn't happen just by putting music downtown. They got plenty of it. And some of it sounds better than church music. Most of it does. It has to happen not just by putting feet to the ground, but by dealing with 
the unseen. Because they don't know why they're down there and they don't know why they find more love in a bar than in the Father. Is this okay? See what happens? I'm talking to the enemy. The enemy is scared to death. The emergency SOS just went off. The enemy is not scared of a church because we make disciples and don't teach disciples what to do. Because we've limited discipleship to being right. Study the word. Get all the stuff right. I'm going to show you Jehu far had all the stuff right. But look at the authority in him. Something cool about this passage Jehu asked for the heads of the 70 sons. And did you notice what Samaria sent the heads in back to Jehu? Baskets. These were the sons of Ahab. Ahab was the one who wanted Naboth's vineyard. You know what happened when they brought Ahab all the grapes? You know what the grapes came in? Baskets. Literally, Ahab's family is reaping what his father sowed. Is this okay? Look, look at verse 8. A messenger went to Jehu and said, they brought the heads of the king's sons. So Jehu ordered, pile them in two heaps at the entrance of the city gate and leave them there until morning. And this time, when you piled up heads of captives... It was a public warning against rebellion, saying, don't rebel. In other words, it was a way to say, look who has the authority now. Verses 9 through 11. In the morning, he went out and spoke to the crowd that had gathered around them. You're not to blame, he told them. I'm the one who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? You can be sure that the message of the Lord was spoken concerning Ahab's family will not fail. The Lord declared through his servant Elijah that this would happen. Then Jehu killed all who were left of Ahab's relatives living in Jezreel and all his important officials, his personal friends, and his priests. So Ahab was left without a single survivor. See, when everyone saw the heads, they were scared because they thought they were going to get punished for the death of these 70 men. But Jehu, assured, Jehu said, no, 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 this was an act of righteousness because we acted on the command of God and therefore we have nothing to fear. Why were they afraid? They didn't know God like Jehu did. And people will fear what they do not know. So it takes a people of God to act on the Father's behalf in order to gain the ear to be able to speak on his behalf and show others who he is. You want to know why people don't want to hear the church? They don't see proof of what we claim. You know the enemy don't want me to preach this. If I hear one more phone, I know y'all can't help it. It's, you know, the whatever it's called, Amber Alerts. Lord, right now we just declare that whatever the alert's going with, we declare that they are found and safe in Jesus' name. People don't want to hear the church. They don't want to hear our voice because they don't see us putting proof to anything. All they see is us addressing the fruit. And in their minds, y'all act like y'all better than us. Y'all hypocrites just like us. No one's saying we don't have stuff wrong. 
It's not about let's get perfect so they'll hear us. Should we pursue righteousness? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's not about let me get perfect so I can. It's about I'm going to walk in what I'm defined as now. And when they see the power of God coming through me, they're not going to have any room to focus on my hypocrisy. Verses 12 through 14. Jehu set out for Samaria. Along the way, while he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, he met some relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah. Who are you? He asked them. And they replied, we're relatives of King Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah was a relative of Ahab. What was the call to do? Kill all of Ahab's descendants. We're going to visit the sons of King Ahab and the sons of the queen mother. Take them alive, Jehu shouted to his men. And they captured all 42 of them and killed them at the well of Beth Had None of them escaped. Jehu had one word. Take out all of Ahab's descendants. And he was wholeheartedly committed to dealing with all of it. A Pharisee asked Jesus this one time, what is the most important commandment in the Mosaic law? Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And he said, this is the first and the greatest commandment. That's in Matthew 22. You want to know why the enemy is gaining ground? Because God is not getting all. He's getting portions. We're told to heal the sick, not heal when you're ready. This isn't let me get my life right so I can. You've got a command. He says, I'm defining who you are, not your acts. We're told to go tell, not go tell when you're comfortable. This is going to hurt you. We're told where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your tithe reveals your whole. The word tithe means representation. And you don't get to say, my tithe is my service. It's a money situation. Well, why are you talking about money? Can we just get past the fact that I don't want to be talking about money? That's because you're convicted. <laughs> Scripture says, if I don't have a tenth of your money, I see where your heart is. And it's a principle that goes into every area of your life. He says, I want all of you. I want your emotions, all your mind, all your heart, all your soul. I want your emotions. I want your thought processes. I want your logic. You want, you want to know what some of the worst things is for people? Their logic stops them from understanding the mysterious things that we're not meant to understand. So you miss saying yes because you want the logic to do the yes. I want your logic. I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your money. I want everything. You don't get to pick and choose. And if we could get that principle, that's when the church would walk in such a degree where if he has all of us, 
the enemy is going to start running scared. But it's got to be all. Loving with all your soul, all your mind. Obedience without having to understand. Some obedience is simply a fake thing, not a make sense thing. Now, Jehu was taking out all of the descendants. Why did God want him to take out all of the descendants? It's not just a natural thing. It's a spiritual thing. Look at Exodus 20, 4 through 6. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them, worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations who love me and obey my commands. Whether you like it or not, sins are passed down through generations. I talked about this in men's group this week, but the Bible says we are born into iniquity. Iniquity means you are twisted and bent. What are you twisted and bent toward? The sins of your... Can you be born gay? Absolutely. You're born into what? Iniquity. Ooh, y'all didn't like that. You're born bent towards something, and you have the free will to choose to agree or not. Some are born bent towards something. It's funny how people say you can't be born with a proclivity toward being gay, but they say you can be born with a proclivity to be an alcoholic. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot tonight. You're born bent towards something, the sins of your parents, the sins of your parents' parents. Sometimes you're born with stuff that skipped your mom and dad. Don't blame mom and dad. Sometimes it was four generations ago, and mom and dad had no idea it came down through the bloodline, and now they're seeing, why is my son or daughter walking in this? And this is where we have to understand, the only way to break that stuff off is obedience and love. Because here's the thing, God says we have to be reborn. Because you're born in the natural like this, and you're reborn, so the iniquity no longer controls you. So if you're a believer, well, I'm just like this because my, no, you ain't. Because you got free of that bent, and now... If you believe the bit, that means God does not have all of your mind. So part of our obedience is warring and engaging with authorities, breaking stuff off that many generations have no idea that they're dealing with. I will war with rulers while I minister to generations. We've got to war with the rulers over the teenagers and kids. Why? Because they are going to be dealing with stuff. Just because you didn't deal with it 
don't mean there ain't stuff in the bloodline. So at night, you need to take some conversation with some authorities and rulers. In Jesus' name, whatever is trying to get my you you do not have them. I break off whatever has been passed down from up to seven generations. Why? Because you have the authority to do it. And it's not just with teenagers and kids. You got someone in your family that for some reason they got this one thing. God, my wife does this one thing. My husband does this one thing. And and even though they try, they can't get out of it. Stop dealing with their fruit and start dealing with and do it together. Because let me give you a little something, something. When you got married, you're no longer one and one. You are one together. And that works in all things. That works with tithing too. Just because your old spouse tithe, don't, that, that means you and your spouse ain't got the whole represented. Mm-hmm. With your mind. Y'all are together. Y'all are one. You got to speak on behalf. You got to do this together. And this isn't a chauvinistic thing, but men, you've got an authority to speak on behalf of your wife. That's not chauvinistic. Women, that should be a freedom for you. Don't look at it. Oh, well, uh, shut up. It's biblical. Let your man be your covering. And man, make sure you are under covering. Okay, some of y'all, all right, all right. Grace makes a way for you not to just be saved, but to war on behalf of the Father. So continuing in the story, verses 15 through 17, when Jehu left there, he met Jehonadab, Jay, we'll call him Jay. <laughs> no. He met Jehonadab, son of, Re- of Re- Rehab, no, Rechab, who, <laughs> who was coming to meet him. After they had greeted each other, Jehu said to him, Are you as loyal to me as I am to you? Yes, I am, Jehonadab replied. Well, if you are, Jehu said, give me your hand. So Jehonadab put out his hand, and Jehu helped him into the chariot. Then Jehu said, Now come with me and see how devoted I am to the Lord. So Jehonadab rode along with him, and when Jehu arrived in Samaria, he killed everyone who was left there from Ahab's family, just as the Lord promised to Elijah. It's amazing what happens when people see your loyalty to seeing God's plan come to fullness. See, the thing about Jehonadab, he was a very popular leader for God, actually. Jehu was hungry for his approval. But here's an interesting thing. Jehonadab founded a group called the Rechabites, who became a movement among God's people protesting immoral and impure living all throughout Israel and Judah. You can read about him in Jeremiah chapter 35. He talks about the people who didn't drink wine and lived in tents because they were obedient to this, and if they were obedient to never drinking wine and living in tents, then they would live long in the land. Now let me go with that for a minute. Sidetrack. The Lord told them, don't have any wine, live in tents, You're going to live in a land a long time in freedom. This is what religion does. It takes a word for those people and thinks 
if I can get everyone obedient to their word, we'll be reaping the same fruit as they reap. A relationship with God says, I've got things I want for your life. And where I've told them they may not be able to drink wine, that don't mean I'm putting that over you. That's the issue with religion. It's an easy way to say, what are the rules? Instead of saying, God, what of my life do I need to completely surrender to you? What of my life do I need? Now, certain things you don't get to have a conversation about. There's Mosaic law, of course. There's all those things. But there's certain things that people can do that are just fine that God says, I don't want you to do this. And you won't ask God for that thing because you're more interested in the religiosity of right and wrong. Can I just put this before you? Doing right things can be sinful. Why? Because sin is simply defined by us missing the mark of obedience to God. If you are operating out of alignment with God and God says, don't do this thing that even though it's good, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine. But if he says, I don't want you to have it, you don't know why you're... Think about it. What if God says, I don't want you to have this because if he can get you to live a life without it, it won't pass down to your generations because you just broke it off out of obedience. And then you get mad when Johnny Smith over here is drinking wine fine and his kids have no addiction problems because you made it a religiosity thing. Is this making sense? Now, now, I'm not saying to go out to restaurants tonight and drink it up. That's not what I'm saying. Do not mishear me. See, something is revealed in all this. Because you've got the religious leader who has led these people, the Rechabites. Jehu is wanting his recognition. But there's something I read in verse 16 that many look over. It says, Jehu said, come with me and see how devoted I am to the Lord. That statement just revealed a root of pride. Look at me. You see, he should have had all this zeal. All this zeal should have just been, I want to be obedient. But instead, he found the top religious student and says, look at me. Look what I'm doing. That's one of the biggest mistakes of the people of God. Their zeal is not found in obedience. It's found in, look at what I'm doing. Look at the difference that I'm making. Look at me. And many people, when they serve God, they get zeal mixed up with pride because they forgot a very simple thing. It's not about your glory. It's about his. And the beautiful thing about God is if you pursue his glory, the scripture says he will glorify you. But the way he glorifies you is you don't chase the glory. Wait, Scripture says that he glorified? Yeah, he says we go from glory to glory. Hmm. Verse 18, then Jehu called a meeting of all the people of the city and said to them, Ahab's worship of Baal was nothing compared to the way I will worship him. Whoa, 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 Baal? Kind of catches you off guard. Therefore, summon all the prophets and the worshipers of Baal, called together the priests, See to it that every one of them comes, for I'm going to offer a great sacrifice to Baal. 
Anyone who fails to come will be put to death. But Jehu's cunning plan was to destroy all the worshipers of Baal. Now, before I go any further, do you think God's okay with us giving a false worship to a false God to sway the people to lead their God? I was having a conversation with someone last week about this certain person at this, I'll, I'll just say it, if she listens to the podcast, praise God. This certain girl always is at a certain coffee shop. And this is no secret. People have addressed it. She says she's a Christian, but that she communicates to God through tarot cards. You think God is okay with using a false form of worship to communicate with him? No. That's exactly what Jehu is essentially doing. He's tricking with false worship. Now watch what happens. Jehu ordered, prepare a solemn assembly to worship Baal. So they did. He sent messengers throughout all Israel, summoning all who worshiped Baal. They all came, not a single one remained behind. They filled the temple of Baal from one end to the other. Jehu instructed the keeper of the wardrobe, be sure that every worshiper of Baal wears one of these robes. So robes were given to them. Then Jehu went into the temple of Baal with Jehonadab, son of Rechab. Jehu said to the worshippers of Baal, make sure, no one worships the Lord. No, make sure no one who worships the Lord is here, only those who worship Baal. So they were all inside the temple to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 of his men outside the building and warned them, if you let anyone escape, you're going to pay for it with your life. Verse 25, as soon as Jehu had finished sacrificing the burnt offering, he, see, he, he didn't even just take advantage that they were there. He went through the sacrifice. He commanded his guards and officers, go in and kill them all. Don't let a single one of them escape. So they killed them all with their swords and the guards and officers dragged their bodies outside. Then Jehu's men went into the innermost fortress of the temple of Baal. They dragged out the sacred pillar using the worship of Baal and burned it. They, all right, literally never happens. They smashed the sacred pillar and wrecked the temple of Baal. Hold on, let me just uh, take care of whatever this is. I'll see that. I just, the power of God. Verse 26, they dragged out the sacred pillar using the worship of Baal and burned it. They smashed the sacred pillar right at the temple of Baal, converting it into a public toilet as it remains to this day. That's what I'm talking about. In this way, Jehu destroyed every trace of Baal worship from Israel. Ahab built his temple for his wife Jezebel. Jehu tore it down and worked to completely eliminate Baal worship. Now, this made Jehu very unique because in the northern kingdom, all the rulers were obsessed with Baal and other idols, not God. So he's done a lot of great things. But what is the title of this message? Warring with what? Obedience. Not just any obedience. Whole obedience. God never told Jehu to destroy the worshipers of Baal. He said destroy the descendants of Ahab. Just because you see a battle, don't mean it's your battle. Look what, so this pride's coming up. So now he's like, oh, look what I can do. I'm going to destroy the altars of Baal, and I'm going to kill all the worshipers. Not redeem them, just kill them. 
So all this pride is swelling up in him. And look what verse 29 says. I'm almost done. He did not, however, destroy the gold calves at Bethel and Dan, with which Jeroboam, son of Naboth, had caused Israel to sin. His pride got in the way so much that he figured out a scheme, used false worship to get the worshipers of Baal to believe him. Then he kept golden calves as a false worship and tribute to Yahweh. Guess what? God didn't want nothing to do with those calves. And I think a lot of times we, we give God a false worship. Like just being real, churches can have great praise team. Don't mean worship's real. You know, th- th- there's, there's a lot of houses of worship that are not up to date at all who know God more than we even do. Because the pursuit is not wrapped up in all this. It's, I can't believe you just said that, Kyle. There's people who pursue God more than us. Well, when you, when you see churches in Africa where like millions are getting healed and we see one every once in a while, yes, their pursuit is a little deeper. Because we don't want to sacrifice the stuff that's hindering the pursuit. He wiped out everything but left calves just like Jeroboam erected, thinking it was a good thing. And watch, verse 30. Nonetheless, the Lord said to Jehu, You've done well in following my instructions to destroy the family of Ahab. Therefore, your descendants will be kings of Israel down to the fourth generation. But Jehu did not obey the law of the Lord to God of Israel with all his heart. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. He left the calves, and he was never told to kill the worshipers of Baal. Jehu did carry out God's will, but his pursuit of glory for himself caused him to do more than God intended, even though it seemed like a good thing. And then by leaving the golden calves, he stopped Baal worship, but left idolatry to Jeroboam without even realizing it. Because when they looked at the calves, they didn't see God, they saw Jeroboam. You see, Jehu was a success in one area, but a failure in another. God used him, but his lack of fellowship with God through this process caused him to take things in his own hands. Let me tell you something. God will use you as an instrument even if you're not in fellowship with him. Can me prove it? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say, well, Lord, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we perform miracles, but I'll say, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. The very people who are performing miracles in church now could be the same people that God says, who are you? Don't judge pursuit by the working of miracles. See, that's where, the, that's where the charismatic church gets it wrong. Oh, look at all this. They must be authentic. The miracle is. But only God can judge the relationship. God will use anyone as an instrument because he will get his glory. There's a, there's a lot of people who do great things for God, and you find that one day that they, that, that is not God-like. God will use anyone as an instrument. Verse 32. I hope y'all enjoyed this message tonight. About that time, this really is my last page. 
the Lord began to cut down the size. Oh, let me read that again. About the, that time, the Lord began to cut down the size of Israel's territory. King Haziel conquered several sections of the country. East of the Jordan River, including all Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, he conquered the area from the town of Aurora uh, by the Arnon Gorge to as far north as Gilead and Bashan. The rest of the events in Jehu's reign, everything he did and all his achievements are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. When Jehu died, he was buried in Samaria. And then his son Jehoaz became the next king. In all, Jehu reigned over Israel for Samaria for 28 years. Now, here's, here's, here's where I'm closing this message at. For hundreds of years, more than 600 years before this, from the people of God, went from the wilderness to the promised land. And ever since then, the people of God, Israel, had tons of land. And now, what did the verse say? God was starting to do what? Cut it away. He's allowing the enemy to take land. Even the richest lands of Gilead. And it was all because of one thing. His people, who he gave all this land to, were no longer fully obedient. God may allow you to possess much, but to keep it, it requires devotion and obedience to the Father. And if you don't have devotion and obedience, the rulers and the authorities who fear the church, when we start getting less obedient, those rulers, they start to not fear you anymore. And they'll start to take what you finally possessed. You want to war effectively and possess new areas of your life? Full obedience and fellowship is required. Because lack of fellowship will cause you to get lost in yourself, just like Jehu. And before you know it, you're doing things you're not called to do. You're managing areas you were never meant to manage, and then you wonder why you're stressed, because you weren't designed for that. And you fear losing a job more than giving God glory. You fear people's opinions of you more than God's opinions of you. And then before you know it, everything you once had just starts being cut away, falling off, kind of like a pruning. I challenge you to search some scripture tonight about pruning process. The way God cuts it is he's allowing the enemy to take it. Because of what you, see, we have the authority over what we possess when we are obedient. When we're not, the enemy has nothing to fear. Remember, when Jehu, at the beginning of this message, when he spoke to this, about the 70 sons to the rulers of Samaria, they, they hey, Jehu, we'll do whatever you want, because they were scared of what they saw him do. If the enemy is winning in your life, because the enemy ain't scared of you. So what is the altar call? What is the response of that? 
Lord, show me the areas where I need to be obedient. Show me the areas that I need to surrender. Show me the areas of my sacrifice. And that as we do that, the things that we're called to war with, they won't stand and mock you saying, you know, like, I know Paul, I know Jesus, but who are you? They'll say, oh, I've seen, I, I, I've seen you. Let, 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 me just, let me just back up. That's how you claim authority in your house. That's how you claim authority in your job space. That's how the church is going to drive out this dark cloud over Savannah and beyond. Warring in obedience. So I challenge you tonight as we go home, as we go to our families, start addressing some rulers that you haven't addressed. And have some conversation with God about, Lord, show me. Not, this is what the Bible, Lord, show me. Where have I been lacking in my obedience to you? The war's won. It's finished. All this is about is, you know what? I'm going to walk in agreement. So, Lord, nothing of me, nothing of my wants, but whatever you want. Amen? Amen? Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight?